morning. It's good to see a bunch of you. Man, it's been a while. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here, so they tell me I've been on sabbatical for the last several months. It was amazing. It was rejuvenating. And by week eight, I was going crazy because I missed y'all. And I'm honored and love this church, honored at what I get to do, and I'm excited to be back with you. And it's open house. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's true. It's true. It's open house. This is a weekend tradition. I hope if you're coming for the first time or the second time or the third time or the first time in a long time, you stick around after service, grab some food, hang out. These are some amazing people that are here. If I was not the pastor here, I would go here. These people are awesome. I'm serious. Salt of the earth, great. We're in the midst of a series called Elijah. Everybody say Elijah. We're talking about ordinary people becoming something more. We exist here at Greenhouse to help ordinary people like you and I become passionate followers of Jesus. And so we kicked off the series with James's uh, presupposition, his sort of declaration that Elijah, supernaturally used by God, was actually just an ordinary person like you and I. We talked about how Elijah, he abided and he prayed. And last week we talked about how he did not just abide and pray, but he expected and then he stepped out in faith to do what? Obey, O-B-E-Y, you ain't got no alibi. He, sorry, dad jokes. You guys miss those, don't lie. No, okay, whatever, doesn't matter, I like them. Elijah stepped out in expectation and faith to obey the Lord. We kind of left that challenge. What would it look like if we took the first 30 minutes of our day or some point in our day, 15 and 15, with God in his word and in prayer and then stepped out with one act of faith-fueled, love-based act of obedience. Anybody give it a shot? Anybody give it a shot? Anybody have some cool stories, some embarrassing stories? Some, I can't believe I did that stories. I hope you did. This week, I want to talk about one of the greatest, not hope you have embarrassing stories, but y'all know what I'm saying. This week, I want to talk about what I believe to be one of the greatest culprits to leave us trapped in the ordinary rather than walking in the extraordinary life that God has created and designed us for. So if you stand with me to your feet as we get ready to read and honor God's word, if you're like, Elihu, Elijah, never heard of him, let me catch you up to speed so we're all on the same page. Elijah is a dude, comes on the scene somewhat mysteriously. The people of God are being led astray by a horrible leader. If you think your boss is bad, like hold, hold someone else's cup, okay? Because he's the worst. Uh, Ahab is leading the people astray. He's leading the people into idolatry. His wife Jezebel is literally on a homicidal killing spree of the people and the prophets of God. Things are horrible. Elijah steps up and says, hey, listen, it's not going to rain until I say so. Drops the mic, teleports over to the desert. He gets fed by ravens. It's crazy and it doesn't rain for three years. God supernaturally provides for him, this widow, someone dies, people cry, get rose from the dead. It's amazing. And then God says, Elijah, it's time. Now, it's been three years of drought. South Floridians don't even know what that would mean, but it means it doesn't rain for three years. Can you imagine? Wow. Crazy, right? We get rain-mageddon, they get drought. And the story picks up here. I'll start in, chap in uh, chapter 18, verse 19. If you're ready, say, let's do this. Elijah says, now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. These are the foreign gods that Ahab is leading them astray to worship who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word all throughout Israel, assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and he said, here's the question on the table this morning. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said, listen, I'm the only one of God's prophets left, but Baal has 450. 
Get some bowls for us, let them choose which one they want, cut it up on the altar, but don't set fire to it. I'm gonna do the same thing. Then y'all call on the name of your God and I'll call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. How many of you are like, I like Elijah's leadership style. Like, come on, man, put the proof is in the pudding. Let's see, make it happen. The people said, bet. Verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first since there's so many of you. You guys go first, call on the name of your God. Remember, you're not gonna light the fire and God, your God has to do it. So they took the bull, give it to them, they prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, they said, answer us. But there was no response. No one answered. They danced around the altar they had made. Now, I, I kind of like Elijah's personality here. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. But he's holy heckling the prophets of Baal. He, he says, hey, why don't you shout louder? Surely he's a God. Maybe he's deep in thought or busy. By the way, the original Hebrew there is maybe he's on the toilet. That's what he says there. He's like, man, I'm, I'm sure he's God. Maybe he's on the toilet. He's a little preoccupied. Maybe he's deep in thought. Maybe he's sleeping and you just gotta wake him up. How many of y'all are like, I like Elijah, but he had moxie. So they kept shouting louder, these prophets of Baal, they slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed, they continued their frantic, crazy, prophesying, bloody mess until evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. So they came near. He repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. He took 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes of Jacob, who God called Israel. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And then he dug a trench around it, enough to hold two seas. You're like, what is that? It's 13 quarts. What is that? I have no idea. That's just what my footnote says. Let's keep going. Lot, he arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars of water and pour it on the offering of the wood. Do it again, he said. So they did it, do it again, he said. And so they did it a third time and the water ran all over the altar, even filling the trench. So at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, oh Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, I've done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O oh Lord, are God. And, and look at the why behind, I love this. By the way, this is always God's heart and that you are turning their hearts back to them. He doesn't say, let them know that you are God and you are gonna smiteth them, right? Fire from heaven. He says, let them know that you are God and that, that you love them, that you have good plan, that you want them back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate. They bowed down and cried out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This morning, I wanna talk about indecision. Let's pray. Jesus, please help. Amen. Turn to your neighbor, give him a high five. You can find your seat. Tell him it's gonna be a good day. Thank you, Justin. Anytime you get lunch, it's always gonna be a good day. Um, not sure if you've experienced this within the human condition, uh, but we are a culture with commitment issues. Can I get an amen? 
Somebody's like, I'm so glad I brought my boyfriend today. Okay, chill. We're a culture with commitment issues. Uh, my wife and I, Nancy, the lovely communicator, she is beautiful and intelligent and articulate. We have two little Jew-Rican babies. My wife is Puerto Rican, Boricua. I am Jewish, hence the Jew-Rican babies that we have. Our oldest, Liam, is seven years old. Can you believe it? Crazy, reading, writing, crazy, seven years old. Uh, but Liam is a calculated individual to say the least. I have many Liam stories, by the way. If you're like, you know what my life has been lacking lately is the Liam stories, Pastor John. I got you, okay? And so Liam, this had to be a couple months ago, but this is his custom. We were there at Publix and, and we're grocery shopping. And every now and then, if Liam has been exceptionally well-behaved, he, he might get a treat in the grocery checkout line. You know, they have all the candy there to torture the parents. And so I'm like, Liam, you you could get something today, bud. And he's all excited. And so he grabbed, he, he's trying to decide though between salty and sweet snacks. Anybody have that dilemma sometimes? Where's my salty people at? One time for the salty people, okay. What about the sweet people? Where are you at? Woo, yeah, the sweet people wouldn't make noise. Says a lot about a personality. My wife, Nancy, she's a salty person. Not like actually, well, no, 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 I'll just play, I'll just play it. I wonder if there's some psychology behind which one you pick and how it relates to your person. I'll just play, I'll just play. Anyways, not the point. I'm gonna get myself in trouble here. So uh, Liam is trying to decide. So he's got some like uh, chips on one hand and then he has like some M&M minis on the other hand and he's going back and forth and he asked me the question, Dad, and he's like really deliberating here. And he's looking at him and he's reading it because now he reads and he's like, okay, dad, which one has more? I'm like, what are you looking at? Like quantity, mass, weight. Like I'm getting into physics here, trying to like hypothesize, you know, like it's just, and I'm like, but I don't know. And I start asking follow-up questions and fine, he just, he does not have the time for it. He's like, dad, it's fine. And we go up to the cashier and he's like, excuse me, sir. Cause Liam has never been a stranger. He's like, excuse me, sir. Which one has more? I was like, great, it's your problem now. You know, I just like, like drop the grenade and walk away. I'm like, ooh, it's not my issue. You know, and the guy, and bless his heart, the cashier was so sweet. And he was like, oh, and he starts getting into it with Liam and Liam ultimately picked. But I remember this moment where my son was stuck in this almost paralysis by analysis. You ever heard that term? This abundance of options. See, we've got so many options. And, and sometimes in our culture, in our world, it's a good thing, but in other ways, it's, well, often it's debilitating. I read an article not too long about, about an individual that was a college student for 15 years, still didn't have a major or a degree. We get stuck in all of these options. You had the right girl, you finally found her the right guy and you just let them get away. You held off in investing in that startup. You thought you might, but ah, you didn't pull the trigger and now you held up on buying that stock. You held off because you couldn't decide on putting an offer in on that house and then the market went irrational. Some of you are like, too soon, sorry. See, we have a problem and it is a malady that afflicts humanity across cultures and contexts. We have a problem when it comes to this abundance of options in our modern world. We find ourselves in this proverbial paralysis by analysis. We have a problem when it comes to wavering Opinions, indecisiveness, commitment. See, there was this term of old we used to use called FOMO. How, how many of you remember FOMO? Fear of missing out. But now FOMO has become FOBO, fear of better options. Y'all heard of that before? Anybody that's been on Amazon knows what I'm talking about. Like, all you're trying to do is buy dog food. How hard can it be? But then you, you're, you're 17 layers deep into the reviews watching someone's video and you're like, what am I doing? 
because you don't want to get the wrong one because there's so many options. Fear of, ooh, man, fear of better. I did not pick that picture for the record, but that's okay. Fear of better options. That's the internet meme, chill. Y'all know what I'm saying? Do you feel that? There's so many choices. There's, there's so many possibilities. It feels like there's so many paths, man. How, how do I know if I'm gonna pick the wrong or the right one? And so often we don't pick one at all. Now this has damaging effects in the natural, but even more devastating in the spiritual. God actually speaks to this specifically when it comes to his vision for humanity. God has created humanity, you and I, to flourish and thrive. He loves us. He's not on a power trip because he needs us to stroke his ego. He's good, self-sufficient and sustained in and of himself, but he loves us. He wants us to flourish. In the book of Revelation, we're told how God wants to approach him. He says, hey, listen, I, I wish you were either hot, on fire, full of love for me, or cold, kind of dead to me, you don't care at all. I don't want you to be, and he uses this term, lukewarm. If you picture a beverage, coffee or tea, think of it like that. I wish I would rather have it hot or cold, but who wants it lukewarm? That's exactly what God says he'll do. Now, maybe you're here and you're investigating God, faith, and spirituality, and you're like, I, I'm not even sure what this thing is all about. Totally cool. We're thrilled. We're honored that you're here. We pray that this is a safe space for you to explore spirituality. But for many of us in this room, in Guyana, watching online, you've been exploring for some time, and you've, come, you've had experiences that have trended you to think, yes, this is legit, or oh, I don't think it is, but we're stuck wavering between these two opinions. We're stuck in the middle. God tells us we don't thrive in the middle. In fact, we end up literally vomit in the middle. Now, part of this is because he's worthy. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the creator God. He's worthy of all worship and honor and devotion and loyalty. Part of it is because he's worthy, but part of it, check this out, is because he loves us and he wants us to thrive. All week long, I've had this message burning in my heart because I feel like for so many of us, maybe here in the room, maybe online, maybe in Guyana, for so many of us, we've been left disappointed or let down and we've concluded that it's God's fault, that it's religion's fault, that it's faith that's to blame. And the reality is it's actually something far more insidious and deeply entrenched within. I'm talking about wavering opinions and chronic spiritual indecision. Here's what I mean. Oftentimes, and again, if you're just exploring, man, we're thrilled that you're here. You're just checking this out. But oftentimes,
You sit in the middle, you can't enjoy either. See, our indecision, friends, God gave a bunch of ways, precepts, paths for his people to walk in so that they could thrive and flourish as he intended. Ahab led people in the opposite direction in almost every single way. He's got them worshiping Baal, worshiping idols. In fact, scripture says that Ahab did more evil than any king before him. If you ever read the Bible, you're like, wow, that's bad. In fact, it's compounded by the fact that his wife Jezebel has a homicidal streak, literally, and she is murdering the prophets of Baal, uh, the prophets of God. She's literally going on a killing spree because the prophets spoke what God said rather than what Ahab wanted them to say. Then we're introduced to the people of Israel. The people of Israel were not told in the story, killed the prophets of God, but they also did not object to the killing of the prophets of God. We're sort of led to, to, to believe that at this point, the majority of the people of Israel, they just kind of go with the flow of what's happening. I would guess, and the story sort of lets us uh, uh, get to the conclusion that if you would have pinned them down and asked them, they would have said, oh, no, 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 I'm, I totally believe in God. Yahweh, come on, I'm on team Yahweh too, yeah. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what, come on. But their actions showed no sort of allegiance. In fact, most of them were stuck in what's known today as religious syncretism. A little bit of Yahweh, a little bit of Baal, a little bit of this other Astra, whatever, and, and we'll call it a day. And everybody's happy. It's religious pluralism. It's not a new thing, y'all. It's ancient. This is where the people of God are. And so enter Elijah, who calls Ahab and the people out motivated by deep love. He says this in verse 21. He goes before the people and he says, how long, what does it say? Will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Now I get in our cultural context, we are a people, we are a modern people who love options, right? How many of us love options? Like I lo we love options in every other arena and in other spaces, it's a great thing. But when it comes to faith and spirituality, God has demanded from his people complete allegiance and devotion. Not just that he is the first option or your favorite option, but that he is in fact the only option. Let me just read it to you in the text. Here in Deuteronomy 5, it says this, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or of anything in likeness that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or is it in the water under the earth. Keep going, please. 
He says later in the Shema, this is the most famous prayer within the Jewish tradition. It says, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with, what does it say? All your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength. You say, well, that's, that's just a, in the Old Testament. That's the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament is a different God. Old Testament was wrath. New Testament is loving. No, he's actually the same God and sometimes misunderstood, but look at it in the New Testament in John. Look at how Jesus articulated the path God desires for us. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, the life. And in case we missed it, he says very clearly, no one comes to the Father except through me. Baal never seemed to have any issue with people doing a little bit of worship of him and a little bit of worship of Yahweh, but the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, creator God makes clear he is the only way. And so Elijah calls out to the people of God, motivated by love and compassion, how long will you Waver. Now, this word waver is a word picture in the ancient Hebrew. This word waver, it says it's correlated to like hopping on one foot trying to straddle a branch. If you could picture that, it's not gonna end well for you. He's like, how long are you gonna keep hopping on one foot trying to straddle a branch? Like at some point, what are you gonna do? You're gonna fall. You're gonna break. It's gonna end bad. How long will you continue to waver? Dallas Willard, the famous author and theologian, says it like this, the purpose of opening the mind is the eventual closing of the mind. You guys tracking with that logic there? It's a beautiful thing. Maybe you're here for open house and a friend invited you and you're like, man, I'm just exploring God and faith and spirituality. Love it. We are honored that you're here doing that. But realize that at some point, the goal of being open-minded to the possibilities is you actually land on a possibility, right? Like imagine a scientist who, had, who was working on a very vital experiment that gets so caught up in the possibilities they never land on a hypothesis. You can't ever test it. You can't ever go anywhere with it. At some point, the open-mindedness that we are to approach God in the scriptures with must land to a closed-minded decision where we say, I am choosing this day the path that I'll walk on. But in our modern world, we have an exceptionally difficult time doing that. That is antithetical to the sway of culture around us. It feels like in some ways antithetical to modernity itself. We hear and we see this all the time spiritually. I, I, okay, Pastor John, like, come on. I, Jesus, he's my homeboy, I, love, I respect him, I think he's amazing. In a very theoretical way, on top of the other X, Y, Z, people that I might follow, but, but God says he's the only God and, and he demands complete allegiance. Or maybe, li li listen, John, okay, I, I hear you, pastor, amen, happy you're back, great. I, I know I'm not living in a way that's lined out with what God has to say in his word, like the Bible calls that sin, which is against us, by the way. I know I'm not living in the way God says, but I believe in Jesus in my heart in some sort of like a, a mystical, theoretical way. By the way, this would likely be the vast majority, if not all of the people of Israel in this story. 
If you would have asked them, they'd be like, no, 100%. Yahweh, we're the call. They could have told the stories. They could have echoed the, the, the tales of old. And if you would have pinned them down, they would have said, no, no, 100%. I believe in Yahweh in my heart. The problem is that their heart, the truth of their heart was revealed in their actions. Which got me all week going back to this very question. And it's an important question. Is internal acknowledgement of facts without external allegiance, true saving faith? And biblically, the answer is no. If indeed God is working on the inside, eventually but definitely that work will be made manifest on the outside. It starts in here. But if it's legit, the trajectory of scripture says it ends out there. By the way, we have Bible story after Bible story after Bible story about this. Elijah's right here. How long will you waver between two opinions? No, 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 we believe, no, 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 but your life says otherwise. If you remember from a couple generations earlier, Joshua got the people of God in the same spot. People don't change that much. He says, listen, if serving God is burdensome, fine, peace out, but choose today who you're gonna serve. John the Baptist said it like this. He says, listen, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Translation, if indeed repentance has happened on the inside, we should be able to see it made manifest on the outside. Otherwise, it might not be legitimate. And finally, James uttered the famous lines in the New Testament, faith without works is what? Is dead. Matthew Bates in his book, Gospel Allegiance, says this, true faith is not just internal. Eventually and ultimately, it must go external. Or to say it a different way, saving faith is not just internal confidence, but also external allegiance. If all that happens, if all you have, if all we have is an interior belief, and I use that term lightly, without the external allegiance that goes in correlation with that belief that is in danger of being clearly biblically invalid according to God. This sounds all sorts of intense. Until you think about it in relation to any other relationship in our human condition and you realize we all believe this already. Let me prove it to you. You got a coworker, hot mess. And he's coming in and he's like, oh my God, man, I gotta tell, I love my wife so much. My wife is so amazing. Oh my goodness, man, this morning, you know, I got up early. I cooked her this amazing breakfast. She's so, man, my life, she is my queen. Woo, I love her. She's incredible. And you're like, didn't you tell us all two days ago how you've been on internet websites hooking up with other women? Right? Now, he could tell you all he wants about his baby, about his bae, about He could tell you all he wants, how much he loves his wife. What would you clearly decide? He's either lying to you or lying to himself because his actions show where his true heart allegiance lies, right? Let's take it in another context. You've got a parent. Man, I love my family. I love my kids so much. That's why, man, that's why I sacrifice. That's why I work so hard. That's why I'm doing everything that I do. I want to be sensitive here because some of us maybe grew up in a context like this, man, because I just love my kids. Everything I do is for my kids, but you're too busy to go to a soccer game and you got too many meetings to come home for dinner. And when your daughter is saying, please, dad, I just want to see you, you say, baby, I can't, I got I to gotta provide for the family. 
and in every context where you could do a little bit less, do work at a different time where you could be with the family, but you continue to say, man, I love my family more than anything. Hopefully you would have someone in your life who loves you enough to come to you and say, hey, bro, I'm sorry, you are lying. Because your actions tell a different story than your words. Are are you tracking with me when this comes to relate? We get this. We get this when it comes to relationship, but we do mental gymnastics and karate chops to get out of this when it comes to relationship with God. We know that it's not just an internal theoretical belief ascension that gets us to a point of deep relationship. It is internal belief matched by not perfect, but eventual and definite external allegiance. Now, before we have a theological heart attack, let me make abundantly clear. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not of works, lest anyone should boast. This good theology, this is from the book of Ephesians. What brings us into right relationship with God is not right actions, because none of us can get the standard of right actions that God requires. It is a heart decision by his grace, by his goodness, because God is amazing. And for so many of us in this room, he has rescued us, amen? That's how it happens. In the same way that if someone gave you a million dollars, how crazy would it be if you were like, y'all, you know I'm a millionaire now? Aren't I incredible? And you're like, didn't somebody? You're like, yeah, yeah, but did you watch me sign that check though? Million dollar signature right there. Who's the man? How crazy would that be? You'd be like, bro, you're delusional. Someone gave you a gift. All you did was sign it. You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You just signed the check, right? It has to be received, but all of the glory goes to the giver, not the recipient. Are you guys tracking with me theologically on that analogy? That's how things work in the spiritual. You just choose to receive and open the gift in humility. Elijah says, how long will you waver hopping on one foot in between the two branches, between two opinions? Now, I get that pluralism is in vogue. Like, it is the approach of our culture. And, and, and maybe you don't like this. Maybe you don't believe this. And I totally get that we're in different places on our spiritual and faith journey. I am just trying to let you know very honestly and candidly what God actually says. And this is what he says over and over and over again. However, before you were to prematurely decide that God is just some petulant deity on a power trip, in order to understand his call to absolute allegiance, you first need to understand a very potent biblical word called covenant. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's all about covenant. It's covenant. This is covenant. God invites his people into covenant. Now, in our culture, we are very, very rarely familiar with covenant. What we experience in our culture, anyone know it's another C word? contract. A lot of us are familiar with contracts. Any business owners in the room, you deal with contracts, right? A contract is if you do X, Y, and Z, I will do A, B, and C. Now, what if they don't do X, Y, and Z? What do you do? You void the contract, game over, right? You don't do, contract says you do for me, I do for you, and if you break it, I'm gone, peace. Covenant is fundamentally different. Covenant is committing loyalty, devotion, allegiance, unconditionally. Covenant is unconditional love. Covenant is unconditional acceptance. Covenant, by the way, is actually what we long for in our human condition. We were created for covenant. Tim Keller, the great 
Tim Keller, who's since passed and been with the Lord, an incredible man of God, he, he describes covenant like this. When over the years, someone has seen you at your worst and knows you with all your strengths and flaws, yet commits him or herself to you wholly, that is a consummate experience. To be loved, but not known, while comforting is superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, well, that's a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. Before you look at the requirements God gives his people, hot or cold, don't be lukewarm, don't straddle, waver in between two opinions, you need to understand first what God offers his people, which is covenant. Covenant relationship with him, completely known. You're like, man, if God only knew, he does. He does. Completely known and completely loved and accepted, safe and secure. Now, initially when I talked about God's call to full commitment and loyalty, maybe it sounded crazy, but again, we understand this on earth. Let me use an earth analogy for us here. On earth, what is supposed to be representative of covenant love is this institution we call marriage. Marriage by design is supposed to be a covenant. Now, let's say you're at a wedding and everybody's looking so pretty and all the bridesmaids are looking so nice and all the groomsmen tried so hard and you're like, man, what a wedding, it's awesome. And, 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 and your girl's up there, your buddy's up there and they get ready and we say these things in marriage like to pledge myself only unto this person for long as we both shall live, right? AJ and Anise are getting ready, as long as we both shall. You're all excited and it's amazing. Imagine that your friend was there and, and they get ready to that part and your friend says, pledge, pledge myself only to you as long as we both shall live. And you're like, oh my gosh, you're so emotional, it's amazing. And then, and then their about to be spouse gets ready and says, pledge myself mostly. I mean, I'm just, I just, mostly unto you. I mean, I just gotta be honest, you know, like things might happen. And so, I mean, if, if you're in that room, how many of you are feeling great? Like, yeah, this is great. This is gonna work out great. No, if you're in that room, you are passing a note to your friend that says one word, run. Right, because we would say, if you are stepping into covenant, it's about what? For better or for worse? For richer or for poorer? In sickness and in health. This is what it means to enter into covenant relation. We know this. Obviously, there, there are, in, in the human, it's a, the, the comparison breaks down. But in the sense of what we long for, what we hope for, what we've dreamed about since we were little kids, this is, this is covenant. So then why all of a sudden do we do mental gymnastics when it comes to God and his invitation to covenant? If we saw someone do that to someone we love, we'd be like, no, that's wrong. Something's not right there. Something is off there. We'd all agree. You, you keep cheating on your covenant spouse Especially if you're like, man, what's the big deal? That's called gaslighting. Like that's destructive. That, that's, there, there's something sick inherently in the relationship. Like there's something wrong there. You're gonna have a horrible relationship if you keep cheating on your covenant spouse. Man, you're gonna miss out on all the joy and the peace and the intimacy and the closeness that could be, that should be. So Elijah says, Israel, how long will you, will you waver between two opinions? This is the showdown. 
we could play Enter the Sandman right now, we'd play it. This is the showdown. This is the moment. 450 prophets of Baal, Elijah, the one prophet of God, the people get together. The prophets of Baal go first. Elijah starts holy heckling them. He's messing with them. He's going after it. Then it's God's turn, verse 30. Elijah says, listen, rebuild the altar. By the way, for some of us, this is a stopping point. This one's for free here, but for some of us, we're... Often we start with great intentions and at some point the altar of our life gets broken down for various reasons and it's a good moment to pause and say, is my life still a living sacrifice, pleasing and acceptable to God by the grace of God, by his spirit? Elijah says, let's rebuild the altar. He douses it with water one, two, three times. And then verse 37, he prays, answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell, burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, what? The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. You said, exactly, exactly. Like John, pastor, reverend, whatever you call yourself. If I saw that, like if we're here at Western High School and fire, actually, maybe that would be bad. If, if I'm somewhere outside where there's plenty of ventilation and fire falls down from heaven, like I am in, then of course, it's easy decision. The Lord, he is God, duh. Like fire just came down and, and made some hamburgers for everybody, like holy happy meals. Like, yes, if that happened, I would be in, no doubt about it. How many of you are like, yes, duh, clearly, right? Well, let me ask you a question in response. And maybe the answer is no. Has there ever been a moment in your life where God made so clear and evident he was real? Has there ever been a moment in your life where you just knew that you knew God cared about you? God saw you. It's not just some theory up there in the universe. It's not just some cosmic deity creator. God is real and he cares. Have you ever had a moment like that where you just knew? Then think about your life in the present moment. Are you living like that now? If we fast forward in the story, the people who had that, what you would consider to be an undeniable eternity shifting moment, many of them started on the Lord is God path, but they quickly drifted away because we human are like sheep, we go astray. We go astray. Elijah says, how long will you waver? What will it take? What do you need? God, show them that you love them. Show them that, that, that you have their best interest at heart. Show them that the life that they have been dreaming of isn't found in their self-effort and abilities. It's found in your plans, your grace, your goodness. God, show them that you're turning their hearts back to you because you created them for relationship. How long will you waver? Here's the application point. Maybe you're here and you're investigating faith. I want you to consider as well, and I'm praying that we would stop wavering and make a choice. I'm praying that modern people right now would hear the same call from ancient Elijah back then that we would stop wavering and make a choice. Elijah says, how long will you waver between two opinions? The indictment from Elijah is that God had become an intellectual option for the Jewish community rather than the risen, saving, resurrection God that he is because I'm not in covenant with an opinion and you're not in covenant with an opinion. You're in covenant with a person. 
Now, there's a cost to commitment, but there's also a benefit. And oftentimes when we drift, it's because we have either run the cost-benefit analysis wrong or we haven't run it at all. For Elijah, there is a legitimate cost here. Elijah, as soon as he does this moment, it's like, whoa, highlight real spirituality. There will be a bounty on his head and he goes into hiding. For Elijah, the the cost of this relationship is potential death and definite running from crazy chaos. Jesus promises, listen, if you follow me, Jesus says, there's gonna be persecution, suffering, hardship, One of the things I love about Jesus, he's not just some snake oil salesman trying to get you in the door and then he's like, peace out, you deal with it. Jesus is so honest because he actually cares about us. But man, in return, the benefit, Jesus tells people, count the cost. There's gonna be a cost. It's gonna be difficult. It's gonna be hard at some points, but the benefits, friends, unconditional love, peace, confidence, security, joy, presence, covenant, rightness with God that yields a security that is eternal and unshakable. Does that sound good to anybody else in the shakable world that we live in? It's amazing, yeah. And my prayer this morning or whenever you're watching is the same heart of Elijah back then that we would stop wavering and make a choice. He said, how, what do I do? John the Baptist, I mentioned this before, articulated this. In Matthew 3, he says this, He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And the NLT, it unpacks it a little bit more. It says this in the NLT, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Now, let me just reiterate, Jesus saves you. It is not your efforts. It is not your work. It is not your goodness. It is an internal response to the grace of God by grace alone through faith alone. But remember, saving faith is not just just internal confidence, but also external allegiance. Now, we see external allegiance, this bearing fruits in keeping with repentance, get very specific all throughout the Bible. Let me give you a few. If you're here and you've decided, you're like, John, I have decided to follow Jesus. I love this place. I've met some incredible people. They're real, they're genuine, they're flawed, but it's beautiful. And I have decided I'm gonna follow Jesus. Maybe it's been within the last few days, weeks, months, maybe year, and you have not yet been baptized. Here is a call biblically. Repent and be baptized. We could do it today. We could do it in your microchurch. We could do it out there in the ocean. Like you, you could get baptized with a fox. You could get baptized in a box. You could get baptized with your hair. You could get baptized anywhere. Like we'll figure it out. Get baptized. You can tell I have kids, right? Maybe you're stuck in greed and materialism, which by the way is, is the, I would argue, the prominent and preeminent religion of our culture. Materialism. Stuff worship. Maybe you're trapped there, but you feel it fighting with your allegiance to God. Ask God to set you free and help you be generous. We see this with Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He, something happens in his heart, and what does he do? Here's all my stuff, because he had taken it wrongfully and had a grip on his heart. Maybe you're sleeping with someone you're not married to. You're like, is that wrong? Yes. That's what Jesus says. It goes against your thriving like he intended. What do I do? Do anything within your power to get out of that situation and stop so that God's blessing can be on your life because he loves you. Because he loves you. Not because he's trying to spoil your fun. Not because he's trying to keep you from the best things in life. On the contrary, it is because he loves you and wants you to thrive in the extraordinary life he has created you for. Not stuck in guilt, shame, hurt, fear, and anxiety. If you're not yet a Jesus follower, man, feel free. Continue to explore and observe. Scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. But if you are here and you have tasted and you have seen, here is the call back to the first chair, people. He is worth it. Consider this your covenant 
constant reminder. He is worthy of all your worship, of all your honor, of all your time, of all your resources, of all your devotion. He is worthy of everything. And when it's all said and done, we're gonna be up there in eternity and we're not gonna wish we put just a little bit more in our 401k. We're gonna wish we poured it all out for him. He's worthy of it all. We're so prone to wander, which is why we need help. By the way, this is why we gather weekly in macro church and micro church, because we are prone to wander and forget about his covenant love and goodness. We need one another when we are tempted to drift. Do I really need community? Are you a human? Then the answer is yes. Parents, and this one was big on my heart. The people of Israel had most like, they had heard the stories. Like they were not ignorant to the stories. They had heard the stories. They just were not their stories. For, for any parents that are in the room, you do not have a choice over when and whether this, the gospel seeds in your child's heart germinate and sprout. You do have a choice though, whether there are seeds at all. Here's something very specific. Like my mom is writing another book. I don't know what it is about, but my mom's like super spiritual and she's amazing. And she's writing another book and she was going through these journals and she's sending me little, little pictures of like, when I was four years old, I said this to her. And when I was six years old, I said this godly thing. And then I lived like a hellion all through high school. So I'm like, well, it took a little time to germinate, you know? But what I'm realizing is my mom, here it is. It seems so simple. It's almost embarrassing. Bring your kids to church. My mom brought me to spiritual environments where I heard things that did not bear fruit in the moment, but 18 years later accelerated my spiritual growth once it finally kicked in. You have no parents, you have no say of over if or when those seeds germinate, although prayer helps, but you absolutely have a say over whether you let the seeds get in there in the first place. Bring your kids to church. I don't know about whatever church, but I know about Greenhouse Church, like we have disciple makers in there. Madison, the kids team are like, we're not babysitting, John. We are making disciples. Lucy comes home singing Bible songs. Liam comes home knowing Bible verses. Like, you're like, well, how do I know? I am a parent and I am a pastor and I'll put on my parent hat. Get your kids here. There's gonna be gospel seeds that get in the soil of their heart. Soapbox over. God's word is true. God's covenant is strong. He's faithful. Stay faithful. By his grace, stay true. Persist, remain. By his grace, stand strong in the faith because he who promised is faithful. Look at how the story ends. Verse 39. All the people saw this, this fire from heaven, this undeniable portrayal of the reality of the power of the love of the goodness of God. And they fall on their faces and say, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And it's within the same day, within the same time frame. Remember, in this context, we're talking about the Middle East here where rain is quite literally life. There's been a drought for three years. We heard the story last week. People are starving. People are dying. It is within a 24-hour period over people bowing down in worship to God that he sends the rain. In the ancient world, this would have been the equivalent of life from death. You know what we call that? Resurrection. He sends the rain. In an agrarian society where rain is life, where rain controls the agriculture and agriculture controls, controls everything. It controls whether you live or die or live to see another day. Refreshing comes when the people finally decide the Lord, he is God. I came across a story this week of, of a girl named Danae. This is a story out of Dallas, Texas. And 
Danae uh, was born exceptionally premature. She was born at one pound, nine ounces. They had to do an emergency C-section to remove her. Her mother was in danger. Danae was in danger. When she was finally born and taken out, the doctor came in and said, listen, your daughter has about a 10% chance of surviving the night. And if she makes it through the night, a very small chance of survival. And if she survives, there are gonna be significant neurological problems, physiological problems. I'm so sorry to let you know this, but your daughter's most likely not going to make it. But this mom, she just kept believing. She just continued to, to believe. And, and, and the dad said, I mean, I was, it's a true story. The dad said, I would be trying to talk to her about funeral arrangements and, and how, what we were gonna do and how we were gonna do this. She's like, no, 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 God's gonna, Danae's gonna live. Danae's gonna live. Danae's gonna make it. He kept saying this over and over. And sure enough, she made it through the night. And then she made it through the next few days. But it was heartbreaking for the parents because she was so premature. Her nervous system was still raw. Any touch was excruciating for the baby. So out of love for the child, they were not able to touch their daughter for two months. And they just prayed, God, hold our baby girl. Hold her, protect her, keep her. Danae ended up surviving those few weeks. And weeks turned into months, and months turned into years. And to this day, she's a little girl. Now she's grown up, but she made it through. Her mom said, yeah, other than being a little bit smaller than her peers, you would have no idea. She walks, she talks, she interacts. She's, she's completely like a normal, adventurous little kid. But... And then this happened. The mom writes, one blistering afternoon in the summer of 1996 near our home in Irving, Texas, Danae was sitting in her mother's lap in the bleachers of a local park where her brother's baseball team was practicing. As always, Danae was chattering nonstop with her mother and several other adults sitting nearby when she suddenly fell silent. Hugging her arms across her chest, Danae asked, do you smell that? Smelling the air and detecting the approach of a thunderstorm, her mom, Diana, replied, yes, it smells like rain. Danae closed her eyes again and asked, do you smell that? Once again, her mother replies, somewhat confused, yeah, I think we're about to get wet. It smells like rain. Still caught in the moment, Danae shook her head, patted her thin shoulders with her small hands and loudly announced, no, it smells like him. It smells like God when you lay your head on his chest. Tears blurred Diana's eyes as Danae happily danced down to play with the other children before the rain came. Her daughter's words confirming what Diana and all the members of the extended family had known or at least prayed in their hearts all along. During those long days and nights of her first two months of her life when her nerves were too sensitive for them to touch her, God was holding Danae on his chest. And it is his loving scent that she remembers so well. And I thought about this story and I thought about the possibilities in all of our lives right now. Maybe you're here in the room, maybe you're watching online, maybe you're over in Guyana. And maybe the part of the story you relate to is not the fire from he on heaven, it's the drought and the famine. 
Maybe you're in a spot right now where like Danae's parents, there seems to be no hope whatsoever and it feels like everything around you is dying or maybe completely dead. Maybe you're in a spot where you're like, I don't know what to do and I'm at the end of my rope and I don't even know if I believe in God, but a friend invited me and I said, man, why not? I might as well give this a shot because I don't know what else to do. And friend, I can tell you with great confidence because he's done it for me. Those who put their trust in him, those who reach out to him, those who extend to him, no matter how dire, drastic, or heartbreaking the scenario are never put to shame. Maybe you're here and you need that hope. Things feel dying or dead around you. That same power, that same resurrection life that we heard last week in the story of Elijah and the widow that we heard right now in this story of Danae and her family, that same power and resurrection life is possible when you decide like the people did back then, the Lord, he is God. Would you join me as we pray? Jesus, right now, I'm asking that for every single person under the sound of my voice here in the room, watching online, over in Guyana, catching this later, that you would move by your spirit on our hearts. That you would call us. Lord, my job is not to convince people of anything and nor could I. Lord, I'm asking that by your spirit, you would draw us. That your kindness would lead us to shift our mentality and approach to life lead us in repentance you can keep your head bowed just for a moment there's so few spaces where we can genuinely pause and examine the health of our souls I want to give you a chance to do that now if you're here and you know you've been wavering between two opinions Maybe you grew up with some sort of a Jesus faith background. You had a marking moment at some point in your life, but you know you have drifted from that path. If you're here, maybe this is brand new for you, but there's something in your heart that's it's like beating out of your chest right now. You're like, what is this? It's God. He's real. He loves you. If you're here and you want to stop wavering and declare allegiance to get Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. This is between you and God. But I'm gonna ask you on the count of three just to lift your hand up. There's nothing magical about it, but I think there is something powerful that happens when you acknowledge on the outside what God is doing on the inside. It seems to help make it cemented and real in your heart. If you're here and you wanna stop wavering, declare allegiance to God, why don't you raise your hand right now? Say, John, that's me. You're talking to me. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Love it, amazing, amazing. Lord, right now, would you meet people in that place? Lord, if they're saying, I, I don't wanna be caught in, the, in between, I don't wanna be hopping on one foot in between two decisions, I wanna declare with my words and then follow with my life, the Lord, he is God. Right there in the privacy of your, of your chair, of wherever you're watching online, just say to him, Jesus, I'm yours. Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I need you. I'm done trying to do it on my own and and run you when I'm desperate, but go back into my own efforts when I feel like I've got it together. Jesus, I'm yours. I'm done wavering. I am fully yours. I surrender. I'm yours. Maybe you're here and you've got internal belief and it's genuine, but you know it's time to make your external allegiance line up with your internal belief. In just a moment, we're gonna invite some amazing people up here, ordinary people like you and I that love Jesus and love people. 
we're gonna sing a final song of worship. And while we do that, maybe your next step is to confess and pray with someone that's up here. Maybe it is time for you to get baptized. You could talk to myself, Pastor Malik, one of the staff, your microchurch leader about that and how we would do that. We could do that today, we could do that soon. Maybe it's a tough conversation when you get home. You know there are some ways that you've been living that are not the paths that God has designed for your flourishing. Follow his path, it's worth it. He's worth it.